for authors, artists, writers, copywriters. Bevy's Cottage Formatting and Design is here to help you polish and beautify your book or script and develop a clean professional product ready for print on demand or ebook. Services include book interior formatting, cover wrap design and formatting, copy editing, proofreading, and graphic design. From event posters, banners, book event signage, ebook formatting, even illustration, to back cover blurbs, maps, and chapter header art. I can help you turn your art into a quality package primed for publication, print, and even broadcast. The full list of services and pricing are available on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Feffy's Cottage FD. F-E-F-F-I-E-S Cottage FD. Don't let your good works get dragged down by simple grammatical or visual issues. Come and check out my page today. This is A Better Utopia, an audiobook podcast written and produced by Counterculture Rebellion, read by the author. Story edited by Feffy's Cottage Formatting and Design. Dedication. Chapter 11 is dedicated to my mom. Mom... (laughs) I don't even think I can write or even say how thankful I am to you. You've always been my rock, the person in my corner. Ever since day one, of course, you've been there. I hope you know that you mean the world to me. Thank you for putting up with me in my teenage years. I know that was not easy at times. And I'm sure there are a couple times I deserved to be strangled, but you didn't. Thank you for being there during my really dark times. And allowing me to come crash on your couch at a moment's notice, even if it was in the middle of the night. And thank you for being an amazing grandmother to my children, even if you may spoil them a little too much. Balaam drummed his fingers on the wooden table. He wore a bored expression on his face. But deep down inside, he was quite excited not to be in the phony temple with the purple robes where they insisted on having their meetings. No, the whole aspect of worshipping some dead god seemed silly and counterintuitive. But to actually sit in a room with some of the highest-ranking members of the Utopians is what piqued his interest. In fact, he was pretty sure he was the only black silk robe to do so. A librarian gave him an irritating look. The tapping fingers were probably too loud, but not so much that she would actually scold him. Dumb toad, Balaam thought. If she only knew who he was and how he was saving her, she would be groveling on the ground, thanking him for his service to mankind. Or he would be bashing her head in with his boot. It wasn't actually her fault. He wasn't wearing his robes. He was still not permitted to wear them unless told to do so. Too much risk. Too much attention and the plan might just unravel. Not enough cities and offices of government were held by the Utopians yet. Balaam slammed his palm onto the desk, the sound of which carried well, since it was only him and the toad of a librarian in here this late at night. She gave him a look and put her fingers to her lips. Be silent. Shut up. Balaam put on his sweet, apologetic smile, as if to communicate, sorry, I just caught up in this book. I'm totally reading, with a smirk, shrug, and a tilt of the head. It was hard to keep his frustration contained. They had taken New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and now Boston. Why couldn't they show their true identity yet? Had they not earned that respect? Had he not earned that respect? Hell, he had been the key on the ground movement in taking Boston. And if it wasn't for him, that idiot Marrier, oh, what's his name? Oh, whatever. He would still be in charge if it weren't for Balaam. He took a deep breath. Soon enough, everyone would know his name. Know that he was a hero of the people. And that he was important. His name would be in the history books. He would be important. 
he would have purpose. He would have destiny, no matter the cost. Well, friend, what brings you here? A man's voice spoke behind him. Balaam smiled and without turning replied, I'm looking for some books. I'm about to go on a trip. They need to know all about cliff diving. The voice chuckled. That sounds like an exciting trip. Though the library, I believe, is closing soon. I could give you one of my books on the subject if you'd like. Balaam stood up and pushed the old wooden chair in. Very well, let's go. The night air was cool and crisp. Recent rain made the ground shimmer with reflections of the gaslights. Horse and steam-powered carts and coaches traveled up and down the roadways as the two men walked down a pristine sidewalk. Balaam looked over his shoulder. It seems no one is following us. Can we stop speaking in code now? The man chuckled. He was tall, well-built, and looked to be able to seduce any lady he wanted. You don't enjoy the game? Doesn't it make you feel like a spy? Balaam sneered. No, I find it ridiculous. We should be able to operate in the open now. We are practically running the country. I should be able to go out by my true name and wear my robes as I see fit. The man smiled in a way that pissed Balaam off. It was condescending, a smug smile, like he was better than him. What's wrong with Christopher? Balaam's face turned bright red. He hated that name. He hated his religious parents for giving it to him. And he hated how the man knew this was a trigger for him. His reaction made the man emit a deep belly laugh, like he had heard an excellent joke for the first time. Not much has changed from our childhood. Still the hot-headed boy with delusions of grandeur? I guess not, Philip. Balaam looked away from him. He could not stand being mocked. If the man had not been his best friend, and this was not a busy street, he would have gutted him. Oh, come now. I only tease you because you're like a brother to me. In fact, we are practically brothers, from grade school to Harvard. We spent the majority of our time together. Philip placed his arm around Balaam. Balaam hated this too, to be touched, and also to be reminded of Harvard. Sure brothers. Except when I dropped out of Harvard and you pretend not to know me, Balaam retorted bitterly. You disappeared. Philip's warm glow turned red hot, quickly calming himself. He knows that he had caught the attention of a couple out for an evening stroll. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> you disappeared, he repeated in a quieter, calmer voice. One night you were there. The next, all your stuff was gone from the dorm. I was mad. We grew up together and I Felt like you ditched me to elope with that girl. Oh, what is her name? The the dean's daughter. Abigail, Balaam muttered. Yes, uh, how is she? Philip inquired. She's dead, Balaam said, matter of fact. Dead? Balaam smirked at his friend. Philip's alarmed expression melted, and he laughed. You prankster. But seriously, I really was mad at you. Philip led them off the busy street and down the old alley. After a few minutes, the alley dumped them into an older road, and instead of cobblestone, it was mostly gravel, and the sidewalk showed years of neglect. Yet, there was one gaslight still lit that looked out of place. Everything about it was new, from the freshly painted lamppost to the sidewalk square it sat on. Balaam huffed. He looked over his shoulder to check again if they were being followed. Where are we going? Right here, actually. Philip walked over to the nearest gaslight. He dug into his suit jacket and pulled out an access key that the city maintenance used to access the panel on the light pole. He opened the panel and turned the knob for gas until the light flickered out. He then replaced the panel and smiled at his friend. Now what? Balaam scoffed. We wait, he replied with a weary smile. But don't worry, it won't be long. The sound of clattering hooves filled the night air. A horse-drawn carriage as black as the sky turned into the street and approached him. A single lantern swung from its side, weakly illuminating their path. It was an old coach. The thing looked like it would fall apart with a heavy wind blowing against it. The little they could make out of the driver's face in the dim light, beneath the brim of his hat and the shadow of his collar, was haggard. He drew in the reins of the carriage. He then pulled a handbrake and, without looking at the two friends, asked in a deep, low voice, 
uh, to travelers. Philip, still beaming the bright, stupid, cheery smile he had casted upon Balaam earlier, we aim to go to the nearest lakeside cliffs. We're adventurous, and we want to dive off them. The man grunted, pulled another lever, and cranked loudly, and the coach door swung open, revealing a purple curtained entrance. Shall we? Philip asked, failing to hide the excitement in his voice. In that thing? It would actually be safer to cliff dive than ride in that thing. Balaam pointed at it in disgust. Philip gestured for Balaam to precede him through the door. Looks can be deceiving, my friend. Balaam was surprised how big the space was behind the velvet curtain. He was also surprised how luxurious it was. Walls papered in violet that shimmered in the lamplight. Two bench seats, one across from each other, were upholstered in plush, inky black velvet. Between them was a small, dark-stained oak table with a set of four crystal goblets which matched the decanter on the lacquered top. A little chandelier dripping with glass gems hung over the table, bathing in the warm, electric light. Philip, how is this possible? Balin looked like a starstruck child as he sat down on the bench seat opposite of Philip. No more old names. Here, we are full utopians, as we were intended to be. Sorry, Icarus, Balaam said with a hint of annoyance. Now, how is all of this possible? I mean, an electric light in a coach? Not to mention how beautiful it is in here. Well, the purple robes have power. And lots of money. With that, I guess anything is possible. Philip, poor Icarus, poured amber liquid from the decanter into two glasses. They can even keep ice cool in here. He opened a compartment from under the table and pulled out a shiny metal bucket with tongue. Would you like ice in your scotch? Yes, please. Balaam then accepted a drink from his friend and sipped with Shirley, the finest spirits he had ever tasted. Is it safe to openly talk here? He asked cautiously while savoring the velvety scotch. Icarus lowered the glass from his lips. Safer than any other secret place, I guess. What about the driver? Can he hear us? No, Philip assured him. This coach? Soundproof. Why are you asking? It's just the purple robes. They bother me. How can we truly have an equal society if they have all this money and power? Essentially they have the ability to create a utopia, then they have the power to shape it in however they wish. What's to stop them from ruling us like however they want? Leaving us no better off than, well, mere slaves. Icarus chuckled. What? What is so funny? Balaam remarked. Icarus sighed. That is what the poetry club is for. The what? Balaam was becoming more and more annoyed with this conversation. He hated being in the dark or being made to feel ignorant, as his friend was making him feel now. The Poetry Club. It's a group of us made of red robes and a few others. I was planning to fill you in on this well after our meeting tonight. He paused as ref reflecting on what to reveal. But then he simply continued. When the time is right, there is a plan to get rid of the purple robes and install in their place leadership that will ensure quality for all. You will get rid of all the purple robes? Yes, all. It is they who exalt our socialist ideas yet have grown fat as greedy capitalists. They're hypocrites, and I cannot fail to mention their bizarre religion worshipping a dead god they call oh, the Beautiful One that exists in direct contradiction to utopia tenet number three, freedom from religion. So why haven't we removed them already? Balaam swallowed the last of his scotch, and then Philip poured him another one without missing a beat. Just like I said earlier, power and lots of money. We need them for that reason alone. They have the ability to create utopia, remember? And once they have accomplished that, we will exercise them like the cancerous tumor that they are. How do I join this poetry club? Balaam asked. Icarus laughed. That is what I love about you, my friend. No fear or second thoughts. 
I knew you'd want to join, and I've already arranged to have you initiated. When the time is right, we will. They rode for a bit, sipping scotch and talking, about the days of old when they were kids, some about this new world they were creating and the excitement they felt for its future and its possibilities. It was this way for a good while. Balaam had no idea where he was because there were no windows and the coach had taken several turns. If he was kicked out of the door, he could be in Argentina for all he knew. There was no way he could still be in D.C. at this point. A tiny silver bell nested in the corner of the cabin pulled three times. Balaam's eye caught the shine of its burnished clapper as it fell silent. Well, Philip said, time for the dreadful part of our excursion. I really do despise it, he lamented. Icarus reached it back into the compartment under the table and withdrew two vials of tar-colored, vigorous substance. Here, drink this, he uttered grimly. What is it? Balaam popped the cork off and sniffed, then quickly pulled his nose away, twisting his face in disgust. That's just awful. Honestly, I have no idea what the stuff is. Drinking it puts one into, well, uh... Well, an almost like sleep state. But you're not. You're awake. But you're also not. I. It's like you're in a dream world. Why do we have to drink it? Balaam said through his sneer. The purple robes. It's to make sure we have no way of knowing where you are or how long you've been there. That way no one blabs about their secret temples or hideouts. Great. An acid trip. Balaam rolled his eyes in displeasure. Kinda. I like to chase it down with the scotch. It helps. Also, Balaam, what? Some people exposed... Some people who are exposed to this stuff have nasty side effects. Even by just touching it, Icarus warned him. Such as... Fever, rash, vomiting, other things. The first time you're exposed to it, and after that, you won't have them again. Will I still hallucinate? Balaam asked skeptically. Yes, but only if you drink it. Some like it way too much and get rather attached to the stuff. I guess it's, it's some very potent misery magic because of, well, how addictive it is. Balaam snipped his vial again. Ugh, that definitely won't happen to me. Well, what shall we cheer to? Icarus raised his vial to toast. To the beautiful one. May it keep distracting our pompous benefactors. We call the purple robes while we pummel their skulls in. Balaam's smile was downright snake-like, and the vials clinked together. The two men put them to their lips and then drained them of their inky liquid. Ugh, this is awful. This tastes worse than it smells, Balaam explained. Here, chase it with this. Icarus poured Balaam another drink. We're going the ice this time. Do you ever ugh, get used to the taste? Balaam asked, trying to swish the aftertaste away with some heavy scotch. Icarus set his drink back down. I haven't. There are some who do and even say they love it. They say it's like a fine liquor. How long until I feel the effects or start seeing things? What? Icarus gave Balaam a puzzled look. You know, what we just drank. The effects. Um, perhaps you've had one too many, my friend. Icarus gave a broad smile that suddenly unnerved Balaam. It's a shame because I believe we've arrived at the party. Party? I thought we were going to the meeting in the Purple Robes Temple. The what? Icarus blinked. Only one eye at a time. Then the carriage perched to a stop. Ah! It seems we are here. Are you ready? Is this code or something? What is going on? Balaam became enraged and stood up abruptly. He was suddenly aware that his head felt quite lighter than usual. Are you okay, my friend? Are you alright? How are you? Icarus rose to his feet, grinning the same off-putting smile from before. He extended his hand to Balaam. How do you? How do you? Then Icarus' face froze as he was a mannequin on display. His hand just stretched out, reaching for Balaam. Balaam backed away from his frozen companion, up against the wall, as far as he could go without leaving the coach. Icarus slowly dropped his hand in slow motion and turned to face his friend. All the while, he was blinking his eyes again and again, faster and faster, until Balaam couldn't no longer determine if they were opened at all. Balaam. Balaam. 
Icarus's voice grew low and drawn out like a record set to slow speed. Icarus, what's going on? Galen exclaimed. Icarus's hauntingly slow smile faded away and then kindly shut his eyes. Galen was sure of it. Icarus asked in his slow motion voice. What? Balaam barked. Icarus's eyes flew open, and upon doing so, they began to melt down his face like vanilla ice cream melting on a hot day. What's going on, Icarus? Your your eyes! Balaam, alarmed and confused, pointed a shaking finger at him. Your eyes are doing it too. Yes, He then succumbed to a reckless laughter. Balaam lifted trembling hands to his sockets and drew his fingers away. They were sticky and wet. Horrified, he cried out, Please, Icarus, help me! (laughs) He laughed again, but this time it came out more like a roar. Do you want to go cliff diving? What the hell are you talking about? Balaam yelled, but it sounded more like a shriek of panic than a man yelling. There isn't a cliff! I'm done! I'm done! I want out! Look around you, spineless idiot! Balaam did look with his melting eyes, and he was no longer in the coach cabin, but instead, it was a wind-blown clifftop set against a midnight sky washed in stars. He turned and looked over the edge of the cliff. Black water filled the void below. What? What is happening to me? Tears filled Balaam's eyes as he fought the urge to hyperventilate. Balaam turned to look at his friend. His eyes were normal again, and he was mostly his old self again, except for his foolish, drawing voice. I can't, Balaam croaked, struggling to breathe, to see through his tears. He peered up at his friend, but only this time to see a beautiful woman in his place. She had long, flowing, fiery red hair that was tossed by the wind, and her eyes were red hot like live flame and they were cast upon him with a withering look of disappointment. Balaam's gut twisted. He was embarrassed for being so weak. He was horrified that she was looking at him. Looking at this weeping child he had become. No wonder she was disappointed. The woman spoke. She declared in a cold, jagged tone. Balaam managed to croak. I I don't even know you. What's my name? Her eyes glowed scarlet. You're... You're the, the beautiful one? You will obsess over me! She hissed. What? Where is Icarus? He was too old. Now... Now he's burnt up. Balaam looked down at the ground. You're not real. I'm just hallucinating because of that vile stuff I drank. The woman reached up to her face and started pulling at her skin. The skin stretched out like chewing gum. What Balaam saw next made his chest hurt. His heart wasn't going to take much more of this. He would die if he stayed. He looked over the cliff at the black water, then back at what was once the woman. Her face was now a blackened skull, eyeless and hollow. Black bone-like wings sprouted from the back as flesh dropped from her body and skins. A gravelly voice asked. Balaam then hurled his body over the ledge. He could feel himself fall, then plunged into the cold, black water. And now, a word from our sponsors. I could no longer deny it. It was time... Yet my stomach lurched and I had a cold sweat form upon my brow. I had to face that dreaded thing that resided in my bathroom. I trudged into the bathroom and flicked on the light. I knew what was coming next and it made my heart race. My eyes welded up in tears for the sheer horror that was about to take place in this very bathroom. It was unfair. Why? Why did it have to be this way? I turned on the shower. 
lifted a trembling hand to the old, rusty, cheap, store-bought razor. My mind flashed to the last time, to the time of painful razor burn, and even worse, how I had nicked myself. Oh, what a bloodbath. I lifted the razor and knew, knew my time had come. My heart pounded in my chest, and it was time to do the unthinkable. I was about to start the bloodbath when a knock came from the door. A sweet, angelic voice said, Hey babe, I got you that Manscaped stuff you wanted. It's in the drawer under the sink. I went to the drawer and pulled it open. There, there it was, a beautiful black leather bag, and in it, my salvation. Guys, grooming yourself doesn't have to be a horror story. Ditch the razor or the lackluster trimmers that pull hair and upgrade to Manscaped. It's been a game changer for me. I'm not having to deal with hair being pulled by the trimmer or wielding a blade around spots that, well, make me nervous. The Lawnmower 4.0 works like a charm. It comes with this amazing light who, and whoever designed that is a freaking genius. And well, basically it's pretty smooth. And really everything that came in the kit it was amazing. It left me feeling pretty fresh and comfortable. I mean, I work a pretty hard job and uh, let's just say the products really helped me stay comfortable down there. By far my favorite part, the boxers. Probably the best pair of boxers I've ever worn. So go help yourself and help the show. Use the promo code UTOPIA and you get 20% off plus free shipping. That's promo code, all caps, U-T-O-P-I-A for 20% off your purchase plus free shipping. Hit him with the water again, a voice called out. There was a sound of splashing. Do you think he's dead? Another voice called. Nah, he's got a pulse. Ah, he pissed himself though. The first voice said with a tone of disgust. He's not waking up, the second, more frantic voice said. You know, the Grand Monarch will not be pleased if he's dead. I told you he has a pulse. Here, let me try this. A loud crack filled the air, and Balaam's eyes fluttered open. His face stung. Two gray-robed men stood over him. They wore cows that covered their whole face except the openings of their mouths. One held a bucket. The other had a grin plastered across his stubble chin. Welcome back. Did you enjoy your dive? The stubble-faced man chuckled. The man holding the bucket added, Be careful how you talk to him. I don't want another beating. He's a nobody. Just some black silk robe. That's barely a step above regular black robe. He can't have us beaten. Where, where am I? Balaam squinted his eyes and struggled to adjust to the light. The room was illuminated by several electric lights, which cast their glow into a tiny room with a metal bathtub and a counter. Why am I naked? Balaam suddenly asked. He most certainly is somebody, a firm female voice said from the doorway. He is the guest of the Grand Monarch, and you would be wise to treat him as such. The stubbled man's smirk disappeared, and they hastily set some clothing on the counter and left the room in a hurry. Balaam tried to sit up, but his head felt heavy and dull, like he had spent a night drinking way too hard. He rubbed his head and groaned. Can you please tell me what is going on, and why am I naked, and where the hell am I? You are in the outer ring of the temple. Here, you will bathe and purify yourself before entry into the main temple area. You are nude because your outside garments are unclean and not fit to wear into this temple. Balin looked up where the woman's voice was coming from, and when his eyes found hers, his heart stopped. She wore a white gown adorned with red gems. Her face was partially obscured by a sheer white veil. He could tell, even with the gossamer between them, that she was the spitting image of the woman on the cliff. All but the eyes. They were not red, they were hazel. Are you all right? She asked with an eyebrow raised. I know for some, the first dive can be traumatic. If you would like to talk about it, we can. As a priestess of the beautiful one, it is my duty to guide all who enter this temple. The first dive? He muttered, 
That is what we call it cliff diving. Or did you just think we chose the word as code word when greeting another utopian? You'll find that our organization doesn't do things randomly. Everything we do is part of the tapestry we weave, every thread, warped and weft. Well, thought out and planned to form our new, beautiful society. Even try to free man from religion while practicing one? Seems quite counterproductive, Balaam said with a bite. The priestess gave Balaam a coy smile. So, you do not believe in a higher power? No, I find it silly to think some grandfatherly thing is up in the sky waiting to love me or smite me. So you do believe in something, or at least believe in the absence of something. That in itself is like religion. I bet you even have your own version of God and you don't even know it. You probably just call it the Big Bang. It's science, not religion, Balaam huffed. He was beginning to feel irritated with this arrogant woman. If he could, he would get up and slap the stupid out of her. But three things stopped him. One, she was obviously important in here, and he would probably not live long enough through the day if he did. Two, he was still very naked. And three, she unnerved him by looking exactly like the thing he encountered in his hallucination, or dive, or whatever they called it. No, it's theory. And a good portion takes faith, just like religion. She gave her head a nod, as if to say I won. Whatever you agree or not, man is religious, one way or another. And the purple robes believe that the beautiful one will fill the need in a man by giving him something to worship, or not. To believe in, or not. There, by freeing him from all the other religions and giving man two easy choices, and lifting the burden of seeking. No more wars over whose God is real. Just a simple, I do or I don't believe. Yet, it will make no difference because we all serve the same purpose, which is utopia. It is merely a service provided to serve man. Is not that not the goal? To serve man? Balaam didn't know if it was the fact that his head was fuzzy from the mysterious liquid from the vial, or the fact that he saw her in his altered state. But what she said struck a chord in him. Even though he didn't want to admit it, he tried to rescind his tone, but it came out sharp. It might be theory, but he lifted his finger to point in the air as if he had a chalkboard with an explanation on it. He did not have a chance to expound upon the difference between hypothesis and theory or the scientific process because he was interrupted by the entrance of another one of the gray-clad servants. Madame, the others are waiting to prepare the dance of giving. The small hunchman uttered nervously, cloaked in a bolder gray lurch into the room. You must excuse me here. She placed a basket inside the door. You will find everything you need to purify yourself. The bottles are labeled one through four. Start with one and apply liberally to your body. It's going to burn slightly. Then proceed to bathe with two and three. Four is applied after you dry off. There are the clothes, a robe, and a mask set there on the counter for you. You are not to leave this room until you are bathed and masked. Only priest and priestess can be unmasked. I will send a servant to guide you to the cathedral soon. She nodded at him curtly, turned and shut the door. Balaam huffed, then grabbed bottle one and began cleaning his body. The gray-clad man with the hunch limped as he walked. It was the first thing Balaam noticed. The second thing was that he carried a small torch despite the room having plenty of light shed by the fancy, overly costly electric bulbs. As he was led out, they entered into a corridor or a tunnel that was awash in darkness, and the torch in the escort's hand weakly cast light ahead, but revealed its true reason. The crippled man had only uttered three words to Balaam as he had arrived. Follow me, sir. Then nothing. The only sounds were the hiss and crackling of the flickering torch and the man's labored wheezing. The lofty priestess had rubbed Balaam the wrong way, and for some reason he couldn't shake it off. Yes, her words bothered him, but so did the fact that she had been part of his drug-addled vision. What had she said during the dream still lingered in his head. An icy pang of horror shot through Balaam's stomach. She had declared that Icarus had been too bold. Surely his friend wasn't dead, he pondered. It wasn't real, none of it. 
he had convinced himself. He didn't really jump off a cliff, so how could it, it have any link to reality? Nevertheless, in his mind, he kept going back to the woman. Balin cleared his head. So silly, he mused. It had to be the hallucination in a weird setting that unnerved him. None of this hocus-pocus stuff had been real or had any connection to reality. It was all a bit much. And he just needed to think logically and take a deep breath, he assured himself. Through here, sir, the crippled man croaked. Balaam had been too lost in his thoughts to take notice of the immense doors that had opened in front of him. Posted on each side, two guards draped in green and silver raiments, along with burnished metal helms that looked to belong to another time. Sabers and a single-shot pistol hung on their waist belts. The stone floor beneath his feet transitioned, as though into a obsidian-colored hardwood of some kind. It followed into a spacious room that was something akin to a theater or a grand ballroom. There were rows of balconies with skews of green silken drapery flowing down to the floor like an elegant cascading waterfall. The walls were papered in royal purple with embossed gloss, scrolling the shimmering splendidly in the light glow of the light embracing from a colossal emerald green half-spear suspended from the ceiling. Several rows of lacquered dark stained tables occupied the first portion of the hall, each surrounded by neatly arranged wing-backed chairs upholstered in amethyst fabric. Beyond that, the room stretched into a dancing area, followed by a broad ceremonial stage and altar. There was an eerie beauty to this vast room, and there was a sense that it was hollowed and sacred. Balaam probably didn't deserve to have access to this area. The room was not empty. In fact, it was quite full of people. There were men and women swathed in scarlet robes, lined and embellished with gold, silver, raven black, and violet. Through a haze of incense and smoke, you could see them. They all wore identical masks, and Balaam could hear voices and laughter emanating from beneath them. Some ate and drank, while others danced to the music Balaam couldn't find the source of. Then something caught Balaam's eye that sent a shiver down his spine. On the wide stage was a huge stone brazier as big as a steam tractor, and in front of it stood an onyx statue depicting a winged skeleton. Its arms stretched down to the stage where the hands formed an altar of sorts. Its ruby-red eyes glared down at him, or that's what it felt like. What struck Balaam with terror was it was the exact image of the red-haired woman had become in his hallucinated dream. Balaam was startled when a voice rose up from behind him. Well, friend, what brings you here? Balaam looked around. Icarus, is that you? Try as Balaam might, he could not tell if it was his friend. For whoever it was, was dressed like all the others in the grand room. You may leave. The tall figure dispensed the servant with a careless wave of his hand. Who else would it be? He chuckled. You all right? Balaam felt a tinge of embarrassment. Yes, I'm fine, he assured his friend. So maybe you can explain what I am doing here. Well, like my letter stated three weeks ago, we are to go meet the Grand Monarch. He named you in particular to accomplish an important task. Although we are in no immediate hurry, we can get something to eat. Or maybe have a glass of wine to calm your nerves, he proposed to Balaam. I said I was fine. Let's get this meeting done with. All this religion is making me sick. They're almost as bad as the Christians. Icarus stepped in front of his friend. Follow me. They made their way through the grand room easily enough. People were almost too absorbed in their talking and dancing and drinking to really take notice of them. Although Balaam felt their stares of those who did to wonder what a black robe was doing in their sanctuary, down here. Icarus and Balaam proceeded to the side of the stage through a wooden door, then up some stairs to the inn where there was a, a portal plated in what looked like pure gold leaf. Icarus seized the nose ring on the gold knocker shaped like a bull's head. He made a few quick raps with it, and behind the door, whoever it was, was shouting too loudly to hear the knock. But Zeus! Using that kind of meat, mixed with that kind of amount of misery magic, could be at best detrimental to a person's health. And at worst, it could turn him into a blood creature, one voice exclaimed. You mind yourself in here. A gruff smoker's voice with a slight Russian accent said, 
Well, in this temple, you are to address me as Grand Monarch. I'm sorry, Grand Monarch. It's just that we don't know the implications of. We don't have any idea on the long-term effects, the other voice implored. I don't care. We cannot have people starving right now. Do you know what hungry people do? They revolt. We are too close to gaining complete control to risk a revolution and lose everything we have worked for. Icarus tapped the knocker again, this time louder. Who is it? said the raspy Russian accent. It's Icarus and the black robe you requested to meet. Come in. Damon, find out the short-term effects and report to me. Now go. I have other business to attend to. The gruff Grand Monarch's voice commanded. Icarus opened the door and a short, thin man wearing a red robe and the same half-face mask as Icarus blew past them, uttering something about how it was a bad idea under his breath. Icarus, come in, come in, he bellowed warmly. And this must be Balaam. I have read so much about you since the son of the beautiful one requested you by name. Balaam froze in the doorway. Wait, who? And read, what do you mean? Come in and sit, Balaam, and all will be eventually answered. The man with a gravelly voice gestured over to the overstuffed black couch across from his stately old desk. Icarus plopped himself down on the couch and shot Balaam a look as if trying to communicate that now was not the time to ask questions. Good. The man's yellowed eyes followed Balaam as he sat. He appeared unhealthy, even behind a mask. He seemed old and worn. He wore a purple and green robe with a violet mask made to look like a bull. He sat down, opened a shining wooden box from which he pulled out three fragrant cigars and offered them to the two men. Please indulge with me. It is, after all, a celebration of Balaam's promotion to Red Robe. I'm being promoted, Balaam muttered, accepting a cigar. Yes, of course. I'm glad Icarus managed to preserve the surprise. The Grand Monarch grinned. His teeth were stained yellow as if he had smoked too much and drank way too much dark wine in his wife. Well, of course that is if you wish it. Do you? Yes. Uh, yes, of course. Good. The Grand Monarch leaned back into his chair and trimmed, then lit, and took a puff of his cigar. He took a few moments to appreciate it before continuing. It would have made tonight's ceremony of getting rather dull if you had refused. You will have the honor of acting as giver tonight. Giver? Balaam repeated, curious. What must I do? You will give a gift to the beautiful one. Icarus, did you manage to acquire the gift? Um, Grand Monarch, Icarus looked down at the floor. Unfortunately, when we took Boston... I was unable to get a hold of it. It may have perished in the protests. The Grand Monarch's smile faded from his face. His lips tightened in the opening of his mask. His whole body became rigid, and he appeared as if he would explode in rage. He then pushed it down, and politely but tense tone continued. No matter. I always have a backup plan. In fact, this would be far a better gift. He took another puff of his scar, then cracked his neck. Balaam, after your promotion tonight, you will accompany my god-dialer, Sidrin, to retrieve an important book. I'm to be promoted to delivery boy? Balaam's voice was thick with displeasure. Balaam, mind yourself. You are speaking with the Grand Monarch. Icarus shot him a heated glare. Balaam balled his hands into fists until he could feel his nails cut into his palms. My apologies, Grand Monarch. I just have worked hard to forward the ideas of Utopia. I wish to do something more... Something more historic, he lamented. <sighs> the Grand Monarch chuckled. <laughs> this is fine, boy. I like your fire. It's not just some book, I assure you. It is critical to the cause. You might say it could make or break the very thing we are trying to build. 
A knock at the door made the Grand Monarch pause as his voice behind it said, Grand Monarch, the ceremony is ready and the hands are open. We will be there in a moment. Thank you, Cypress. The Grand Monarch set his cigar down. One last thing, Balaam. You will need to wear this when working with Sidon. He slowly bent down and pulled a shoulder pack from the ground by his chair and holding it in his hand. She has an intriguing ability. They call it mind weaving. Very rare. This will help you keep her out of your head and trust me, you will need to. She has a habit of toiling with people's minds. A mind weaver? I've never heard of that. Balaam did his best to keep his tone of condensation from coming out, but failed miserably, which resulted in Icarus elbowing his friend. Yes, most haven't, unless you enjoy fairy tales. Now, he continued, she needs this once a day. He reached into the satchel and removed some vials filled with a scarlet liquid. You will find these vials of blood in there. She is only to have one, unless there is an emergency, and then you may give her another. You will also need to wear this. He withdrew a small silver chain. It goes around your head. You should wear a hat or something to cover it up. Try to keep it from people noticing, and it will keep her from toiling with you or convincing you to give her more blood, possibly your own. He handed the pack to Balaam. Remember, only one vial. If she gets too much, she may fully mutate, and we no longer be of use of her. Balaam gave the monarch a look of confusion. Are you saying she draws her power from blood magic? She mostly uses it to bolster her abilities. Are you okay with that? The gruff monarch replied. Icarus jumped in. I mean, any means to obtain Utopia is good because it benefits, right, Balaam? Besides, Balaam, by accomplishing this meaningful task, as you would put it, I will make sure you are greatly rewarded. The Grand Monarch placed a slight trembling hand on the arms of his chair and pushed himself up. Now, we have kept everyone waiting long enough. Won't you two join me on stage for the ceremony? Me as well, sir? Icarus asked in a bewildered way, stupidly pointing his finger at himself. I know it's unusual, Icarus, but you too will share in the honor of the ceremony tonight. Will the son of the beautiful one be okay with that? I'm sure he'll be well pleased. The Grand Monarch smiled that yellow grin and then headed for the door. Hauling the old man to the stage took some time, but it allowed Balaam some time to notice a few things. One, the smell of cannabis and lemongrass assaulted the nose, and two, which was less noticeable, Icarus's friend, who was never nervous, seemed to be shaken. It was odd, as in college he was the captain of the Harvard debate team and never wavered. Once on stage, both of them noticed the changes that had happened since they had walked through the grand room. Now there were three fires one in front of the giant fireplace behind the statue, one under the cupped hands of the statue, turning the once black hands red hot, and one in front of the stage giving off smoke that made the once hazy room more thick with smoke. Join me on stage, both of you, the Grand Monarch growled. Two silver helmet guards came behind them, cutting off any exit other than going on stage. For far too long I have allowed these seeds of discord to be sewn into the fabric of our new society, the Grand Monarch called out to a large group of onlookers. He walked to the center of the stage, where the firelight showed him, making him look like a green and purple lantern. For too long I have let rebellion live under my nose. During this time I am giving to the beautiful one. I give the chance for one to rise, and for the beautiful one to decide if this new faction called the Poetry Club should continue. I give my ability to choose to the god of our society. I give my role as Grand Monarch to the Beautiful One. He then turned to the giant statue 
and fell on his knees, as he did, thirteen women wearing white sheer dresses that flowed and guided in the air began to dance. A beautiful but eerie music began to play as gray cloaked servants threw powder into the fire below. The hands of the statue that made the green fireballs rise into the air. The one priestess that Balin had met in the bathroom danced as she moved in the middle of the stage. She was beautiful, with a porcelain figure that moved with such grace that for a moment Balin forgot why he was here. Two loud deep horns sounded that brought him back to the horror of his situation. His thoughts raced. What was going to happen to Icarus? And him? Were they going to kill them? He wasn't even really a member of this poetry club yet. She continued to dance, her moves becoming less beautiful and more sporadic as if she were drowning. Then the other twelve women surrounded her and began flailing their arms in a striking motion. She screamed and cried as incoherent words left her begging lips. The dancers moved away as two red-robed men carrying a large bucket, then dumped the red liquid all over the screaming, flailing woman. She stopped and stood tall and proud as she looked at the audience below the stage. Arms stretched out like the large statue behind her, soaked gown clinging to her natural figure. After a long, dramatic pause, the music died down. She smiled and walked off the stage. The two red robes set the bucket down and helped the old monarch off his knees as he yelled, Balaam and Icarus, join me up here! Rage filled his words as they echoed off in the distance. Icarus tried to turn around, but his body collided with the large guard who shoved him onto the stage, then drew his saber out. The sword metal sung a song of death as it left its scabbard. Balaam swallowed hard and slowly followed his friend. He could feel the sweat running down his face and the wooden mask. His heart pounded hard in his chest as they stood in front of the monarch, who looked less like a crippled sick man and more like a demon. Icarus has decided that he knows better that he knows better than all of us, that his vision of utopia is far more fair, more just, more equal. Isn't that right? I... I don't know what you're talking about, Grand Monarch. I assure you I have nothing but the utmost loyalty for our cause, the purple robes, and the beautiful one. Why do you lie, Icarus? Do you not think I have not had eyes in the so-called poetry club do you think you have kept your recruiting efforts a secret from me i would never a loud smack rang out as the grand monarch's hand wiped across the face of icarus his red mask flew and clattered across the stage today icarus and the poetry's club fates will be decided today i will offer it as a gift to the beautiful one i will lay down my authority and the poetry club to the beautiful one. However, as the mouthpiece of the beautiful one and the sun, I cannot make choice as it would be biased. I asked the sun for guidance and he gave me a name. Not just any name, but a man who deserves more than life has given him. A man who could one day become great or die in obscurity. A man who doesn't even believe in the beautiful one, but serves Utopia, and therefore serves the beautiful one's desires. The Grand Monarch turned to Balaam, and rested his hand on the shoulder of the trembling man. Balaam, today you get to decide the fate of Utopia. You get to decide the fate of us all. But most importantly, you get something that is rarely given to a man to look at the crossroads of life clearly and choose one's own destiny. This is the gift the beautiful one has given you. Now you must choose if you will give it back. The priestess, soaked in red, walked from the side of the stage carrying a red velvet pillow with a silver rod with a metal ball at the end, about as long as a man's forearm. She walked up to Balaam, smiled in a way a lover would to her beloved. Take this, Balaam, her words sweet as honey. Balaam stared at the woman completely red, except her green eyes that shone like two emeralds. But that couldn't be right. Balaam remembered her eyes were hazel. He then looked down at the silver weapon, and his eyes went wide. 
The realization that he was not the victim gave him a short-lived relief that was followed by the gut-punch feeling that he would have to kill his best friend. His eyes went wild looking at the woman, then to the monarch, then back to the weapon. Take it in your hand, the monarch growled low enough that only Balaam and those standing near could hear. Balaam lifted a trembling hand and placed it on the handle. The metal felt cold in his hand, and he pulled it off and looked at it. Then he let it hang at his side. Before he could react, the priestess grabbed a hold of him and forced a kiss onto his lips. Balaam went from confused to feeling invigorated until the woman shoved something from her mouth to his. It was some kind of thick liquid with a familiar taste. And then the horror creeped up his spine as he knew he had just swallowed the same liquor he had drank earlier. His head buzzed, and although he knew that it was the small amount of the drug, and he was unsure if it would cause him to hallucinate again. She pulled away with a smile and winked at him, then stepped back next to the monarch. The monarch cleared his throat. <clears> throat> Balaam, today you have choice. You can choose to throw down weapon and walk away with both your life and your friend's life untouched. You can go back to whatever life you had before you became part of the Utopians and hand over our society to the Poetry Club. Or you can beat your friend to death and have his status as Red Robe and offer him to the Beautiful One writing your name in large letters in all the history books and smashing this other nonsense of the poetry club once and for all. Which is it? To be a nobody with your friend? Or to change the world and create your own legacy? The word legacy seemed to ring louder in Balaam's ears. Balaam, please. Chris whispered. You don't have to do this. We can walk away. We're practically brothers. You know my family, how rich they are. They'll be so grateful that you saved my life. They'll make sure you'll never want or need anything again, Balaam. Is that what you want? The sweet word of the priestess flowed to Balaam's ears. To be some old rich man who no one knows or cares about? To walk away from all of this with that coward. Look at him beg for his life. You don't want to be like him, do you? You want to make history. You want to be somebody. Or do you want to go back to being a nobody? The sound of metal on bone shocked Balaam. He had swung the weapon, but with the thought of the action had not fully processed through Balaam's mind, and Icarus had at last minute thrown his arm up to protect his face. Now his left wrist hung at an odd angle, and Icarus was screaming. The scream annoyed Balaam for some reason. He should have been shocked or felt pity, but all Balaam felt was annoyed. Then an odd thought came to Balaam's mind. What if he hit the knee? What would it do? He swung again and connected to Icarus's knee, knocking it sideways. This time the man fell to the ground and really wailed, and Balaam's mind was confused and amazed at how wide the mouth of Icarus could open. Please, Balaam, stop! Icarus cried. His face was red like a tomato, and his eyes almost seemed to bulge as if they were floating all that water that was running out. Please, we can still leave. We are best friends. Please don't do this. Balaam stepped over and straddled his friend. I know we are. You're probably right. We could still leave. Balaam felt awed at how calm the words were floating out of his mouth. He had killed before, but it was faceless nobodies or idiots with badges. Never someone so close to him. Well, except that one time, he thought. I can't go back to being a nobody. Don't you understand, Icarus? It's not my fault you flew too close to the sun. That's on you. You're done. You're done for, not me. Icarus began weeping harder, and snot leaked out of his nose and mouth. Please, 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 Christopher, please. Christopher is dead. He was a nobody. Balaam's rage filled his throat. Balaam is not nobody. He swung the weapon across the weeping man's face. It connected and shifted the jaw and the nose sideways. I'm not a nobody. Balaam lost control then and swung repeatedly as blood flew through the air. 
and Balaam screamed, then dropped the weapon and looked at the monarch and the priestess. They gave him a warm smile and began clapping. Soon the whole room was clapping, and it was all for Balaam. The priestess stepped over to the body and pulled off the wet red robe. She handed it to Balaam. Here, Balaam, you have earned this. Very good, Balaam, very good. Now, throw the body into the hands of the beautiful one. Tomorrow, you leave with Siren to Ruckersville, and you will fetch me my book. This has been A Better Utopia, Chapter 11, Cliff Diving, an audiobook podcast written and produced by Counterculture Rebellion. Story edited by Miranda Mayer. Tune in September 12th for the next chapter. For more updates, follow us on Facebook at the A Better Utopia Facebook page.